0: Hey, it's Brent. It's July 23rd. Training camp starts in two days. This is episode 11, season 4 of Burgundy Blogcast. And with the season about to start, I am cleaning out the vault. Welcome back to the blogcast, friends. I think it's been about a month at least since I did this. I have no partner tonight, it is just me again. And I intend to hit three or maybe four topics of interest to me as we finish up the off season and get ready for the real stuff. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, the Redskins selected Adonis Alexander in the sixth round of the supplemental draft. It was the first time the Redskins had selected a player in the supplemental draft since Jeremy Jarman nine years ago. And of course, some years, no players get selected in the supplemental draft, so this was an interesting occurrence. It's the kind of thing that just doesn't happen very often, and it's really hard to know what you're going to get out of it. Since supplemental draft picks are just as unpredictable and even less common than regular draft picks, it would have been, frankly, kind of ridiculous for anyone to say with... Confidence or certainty prior to the fact that the Redskins were going to draft Alexander or anyone else for that matter, but there were reasons to think that this match might eventually come to fruition. In fact, I tweeted before the draft, and I realized that this is a connection that many people made. It's not some special epiphany, but I did make mention of the fact that there was a connection between Don- Adonis Alexander and Torian Gray, the Redskins' defensive backs coach, who coached him in his first year at Tech. The thinking, of course, was that Torian Gray would be in a position to know as well as possibly anyone else in the league exactly what. Makes Adonis Alexander tick, and whether the attitude issues that got him disqualified at Virginia Tech would be the kind of things likely to translate into the professional ranks. And so, sure enough, Uncle Torian seems to have given the big okay on Adonis. And I would submit that that and that alone is probably the single most encouraging and hopeful thing about this pick. And the main reason for Redskins fans to think that it might work out. I want to discuss Adonis briefly, but from a few different angles. Number one, physical tools, raw tools and traits. His are good, but maybe not quite as good as some have made him out to be. I kind of disagree with the notion... Or the reputation that he might be some kind of physical freak. I mean, he is big, well, rather tall. I mean, he's over six foot two with long arms, which is great. That's highly desirable for a defensive back, as long as they can play. But he's not especially fast, at least not in terms of timed speed. In fact, his four six forty time is probably what uh, dropped him all the way to the sixth round in the supplemental draft. And he's not exactly strong. In fact, I think he only put up pretty sure single digits on the bench. I think nine reps on the bench. He wasn't really super explosive in the other drills either. So. Pump the brakes a little on this physical freak thing with Adonis. I think he's tall and long, which is nice, but we'll just have to see about his overall athleticism and power. Next angle, production or performance? In other words, well, just how good of a player is Adonis Alexander? And I think the answer to that is something like, well, he's been good, but he's also been okay. Specifically, his first year at Tech, playing a little bit of safety and corner, he was good. He was really good. In fact, I think he was all ACC freshman team. But in his second and third years at Tech, again, playing a combo of corner and safety, even throwing out the suspension, I think, for drugs and possibly one other benching for attitude-related things, I feel he was flashy but inconsistent in terms of tackling, angles, and coverage. This impression is built on a little bit of watching, but mostly on reading what other smart people with more access and time on their hands have said about him. Finally, intangibles. Uh, not good. Below average. His are just not very good. That's why he got kicked off the team. For academic reasons and because he had been a headache, one of the tech beat writers went on the Redskins Talk podcast and said that he, quote, just doesn't get it, which I think is a very damning phrase. And he's saying all the right things since the draft, but you're just going to have to wait and see on whether or not this guy's actually committed to being a professional athlete. So in summary, I think Adonis Alexander is a kid whose best case outcome scenario is really good. It's like above average starting safety or corner. But there's certainly a high chance of total washout. So overall, I think for a 6th round pick, which tends to turn out to be not much of anything anyway, and in a year when the Redskins were very likely to have been picking twice or even three times anyway in 2019 in the sixth round, I'd say it seems like a good move. I'm excited about it. or at least intrigued to see where it goes, but I'm not going to make too much of it. Although I do think it's extremely likely that he's going to make the roster because I just don't think they would have gone through the hassle of making this pick if they weren't ahead of time very confident that they would end up keeping him. Now, I'm not really sure if he's going to make it as a safety or a corner, though I tend to think they're going to try and make him a corner first. That would make him a threat to the roster spots of Josh Holsey or Greg Stroman. But they might also justify keeping him as kind of like a fifth safety. So I suspect he'll make the first version of the 53, but I don't think he's going to play a lot as a rookie. I'm about to kick it back to good old Kirk Cousins right now. If you are among those who simply can't stomach listening to anything else about him because he's not a redskin anymore, that's fine. Go ahead and shut this off or fast forward or whatever. I don't care. He still interests me greatly. He did this Bleacher Report feature like a week and a half ago. You've all read it by now and heard about it ad nauseum on sports radio, but let me tell you a couple things I think about it. Specifically, two quotes by him in this article. Now, you will remember that... I am a Kirk Cousins supporter, generally speaking, and I enjoyed him as a Redskin, and I wanted them to sign him, and I think going back in time several years, they definitely should have, and even recently, I I wanted them to figure out a way to make it work. Of course, it has become abundantly clear in in recent months that that just was never going to happen and that the marriage was destined for divorce or the engagement or whatever. I don't even know how how the analogy fits anymore, but whatever. First of all, Cousins said, Here I'm known as the starting quarterback and a seven-year veteran, so I'm instantly given a platform and place to lead from. In Washington, I was a fourth-round pick. I was a guy who had been benched. I was a guy who was figuring it out. I was a guy with a franchise tag, so the perception can be different, end quote. I just want to echo the popular criticism of this comment, because the Redskins paid him a ton of money, and everyone in the organization, from the leadership, uh, from the front office, down through the coaches, and even his teammates, were implicitly, and I would say explicitly, almost begging for this guy to lead the team. For each of his three years as a starter, and certainly for the last two, this team was aching for him to step up and be the QB1-type leader that, you, that everybody wants. And, and my sense is that they coached him like one, they treated him like one, they certainly paid him like one, whether by long-term deal or not. And it really should have just been expected. So this wasn't an opportunity thing. They handed him the reins. Going back to the very beginning when Jay Gruden named him a starter three seasons ago. He said, it's Kirk's team. Kirk's team. He couldn't have been any more clear. He said it into a microphone. So you were, in fact, given a platform and a place to lead from, Kirk. I thought it seemed like, in some ways, at least on the field, you were doing that. A little bit. But none of us as fans really know what was happening behind the scenes. And if you're telling us now that you didn't because you felt like you couldn't, I think that's on you. Not on us or on Jay. And the second thing he said in this article that really chapped my buns was this. The contract, as my agent Mike McCartney said, allows me to go out to the field every day and never think about money. The money is done. I can just go play football, and that's what I love. The last thing I want to think of is if I throw for 200 more yards, I can get a million-dollar bonus. I didn't want to do that. I can just think about how I can help this team win. This, of course, bothers me because of the obvious implication that prior to signing this contract, he was thinking about money on the field, on the field. Now, listen. I, I mean, I'm a fairly realistic person. I don't, I don't begrudge any professional athlete his prioritization of his security. I mean, get your money, feed your family, build your wealth. I get it. He deserves to. It's a big reason he's worked so hard for all this. But the idea that, the, the insinuation that he may have literally been thinking about stats and their implications for his bank account. When, when, by the way, let's not forget that he was on a fully guaranteed contract. So last year there were not any stats that specifically mattered, like literally or directly, for how much he was going to get paid for the year. But he's basically saying in this article, or again, I guess insinuating, that there were times on the field during plays or between plays where he was thinking about uh, making decisions or or influence and in what he was going to do with the ball, where he was going to throw the ball, or how he might call an audible. That those moves were directly impacted by the potential consequences for his uh, imminent free agency. This was a long-standing criticism. That of him that I just never wanted to believe. The idea that he was, you know, nursing his completion percentage or avoiding risky throws, not for the purpose of increasing the team's winning chances, but to make himself a a more marketable free agency addition. I just hate that he said it. I mean, he didn't come out and just flatly admit it, but he flirted with it, and I hate the idea. Get your money. Go get your money, but recognize that, that that comes, like the success on the field that will earn you that money in the future from your current team or another should be the extent to which it is obvious that you are efforting primarily to help the team win. I really think to have success as a team in a season or for several seasons, you need your quarterback to be a gamer. I'm not talking necessarily about clutchness, but just commitment to the cause. Some guys like that were Hall of Famers like Brett Favre and Steve Young, but others were sort of more like just above average guys like Romo. Or Jeff Garcia. And still others are, are like journeymen, but guys that, that you can win with in a pinch and maybe for a stretch because his teammates believe in him. The Josh McCowns, the Ryan Fitzpatricks. If you have that, you always have a chance. Whereas you could have the most physically gifted quarterback in the world. You could have Jeff George. But if his motivation is all wrong, the team's just never going to get where it's trying to go. I'm probably over dramatizing this. And I don't just think that Cousins, you know, totally alienated all of his teammates. And I think even in retrospect that there were plenty of guys who enjoyed playing with him and and liked playing for him. I mean, even Trent Williams, whose voice should be basically respected above all other current Redskins, certainly went to bat for cousins in the media a number of times. So there is that context. But for him to make that comment on his way out the door, that he didn't want the dollars and cents to affect his reads and progressions and the implication that that's what was happening here, as a fan of his, that was hard for me to swallow. And I do think that as a fan of the Redskins, you got to love that no matter what Alex Smith is making, and yeah, he's making a lot, but no matter what his number, that he'd give a finger and a nut to win a Super Bowl. Paul Richardson was the Redskins' most high-profile free agent signing this year. And he didn't really even rank among the highest profile signings across the league. But they paid him a lot to come and make a big imprint on this offense, primarily by stretching the field. And I was fine with the Redskins signing him. Not ecstatic, but fine, because I do think he can kind of be like a Deshaun Jackson light, or very, very light, like a virgin Deshaun Jackson, like a D-Jax Shirley Temple. But my concerns, in addition to the fact that he's just slight and fragile, and therefore still fairly unproven, we're centered on the reputation for being a kind of a one-trick pony, that being kind of a uh, basically a deep threat only or, or a, a splashy highlight catch type of guy. But on that topic, I wanted to again call attention to two advanced statistics compiled by Pro Football Focus, which I treat, uh, retweeted recently regarding Paul Richardson that frankly impressed me and surprised me a little. The first is that Paul Richardson generated the highest passer rating when targeted in the end zone in 2017 of all receivers with at least five targets. Russell Wilson's passer rating when throwing to Paul Richardson in the end zone was basically perfect, 158.3. Now, clearly a lot of that is the wizardry of Russell Wilson, but I subscribe to the school of thought that when you are number one in anything, like literally number one at the top in the NFL among your position, for a full season, you're probably good at it. So this would suggest that maybe Paul Richardson will be kind of awesome in the red zone or at least could be, and that is a huge boon to this Redskins team, of course, because they've notoriously struggled there recently. The second Paul Richardson stat um, generated by Pro Football Focus that I hadn't been aware of until recently was that he, again, generated the highest passer rating when targeted versus what they consider quick pressure, which is in 2.5 seconds or less. Number one among all receivers in the league who had at least 10 receptions on the year in terms of quarterback's passer rating when targeting him against quick pressure. That is a useful thing. I mean, I generally think of more like a possession-type receiver or a tight end maybe as that security blanket guy that a quarterback will look to immediately when a blitzer goes unblocked. Like an Anquan Bolden or a Pierre Garçon-type guy, usually like the real badass tough guys. But huh, what do you know? Look at that, Paul Richardson. Pretty reliable when there's quick pressure, number one in the league. Again, a lot of that is Russell Wilson because he does amazing things. But maybe, just maybe, Paul Richardson is not Strictly a one trick pony. And maybe the Redskins giving them the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe they paid him for more than just that speed. (laughs) Last thing here, fourth and final major point for this podcast session. I debated whether or not I was even going to bring this up because I'm going a little bit off the grid here. Red Alert. Pay attention, this is rumor time. Rumor mill. Okay, I want to make that abundantly clear. The following is a rumor. Not fact, not something I witnessed with my own eyes, not something I heard directly from the mouth of either primary participant. But, hopefully, most of you know me well enough by now to know that I I really try my best not to just go shooting off half-cocked with every little flimsy, unsubstantiated rumor that I encounter. So I can only say that I researched this very thoroughly. It was corroborated by no fewer than three unrelated sources, and I strongly believe it to be true. This is some dirty soap opera type stuff regarding two fairly high-profile redskins and potentially a little myth-busting. Most of you know by now and have known since shortly after DJ Swearinger became a redskin one year ago that he is a former high school classmate and teammate of his current teammate, Josh Norman. So without dispute, they have a long history and a deep familiarity. And I think there's a prevalent narrative that they are basically blood brothers too. That they are naturally in sync on the field. That on the gridiron they think and move as one. That they feel each other's pain and nurse each other's children. But I want to share tonight that I feel that that narrative may be largely hogwash. To be clear, I'm onto to a convincing report here that Josh Norman and DJ Swearinger are actually not even friends. As I understand it, Josh has a problem with some of DJ's preferred off-field pursuits, specifically one pastime which he apparently enjoys about as much as Trent Williams does, if you catch my drift, and that DJ in turn basically thinks that Josh is just weird. But what I uncovered actually goes a little bit deeper than just a surprise beef between two supposed best buds. Again, having spoken with three unrelated sources, my understanding is that there have been a number of confrontations between Josh Norman and DJ Swearinger since they became teammates. At least one of them was physical, and it was described to me actually as a fist fight that occurred on the practice field in front of coaches in the team, and that this happened the week before the Chargers game, which was week 14 last year, and that DJ landed a punch or significantly impacted Josh to the extent that he was feared to have or was evaluated for a legitimate concussive head injury. Now, I checked back, and Norman was not on the injury report that week. He did get burned for a couple of big plays in that game where the Redskins got destroyed by the Chargers 30-13. to But as I understand it, the coaches were totally aware of it and completely swept this under the rug, and it just did not get out at all. After that game, Norman and Swearinger both had harsh criticism for their teammates and the locker room in general, albeit in kind of a general, broad, anonymous way. But both expressed dissatisfaction after that game with the team's commitment and preparation. And I believe this physical altercation was a big part of that angst. Along the same lines, many of you will recall hearing that Josh Norman attempted to start something of a tradition last year where the defensive backs would meet together once weekly at his house for dinner and film and bonding activities. And you may further recall that he expressed public dissatisfaction at one point that there was not universal buy-in among the vets for that weekly gathering. And my understanding is that DJ Swearinger initially attended those as a showing of solidarity, but that he had been among the first to unsubscribe. So take that for what it's worth, my friends, but I'm comfortable putting a stamp, the Burgundy Blog seal of approval on that story, as I do believe that the flight marshals are experiencing some turbulence. But um, bum That's it. That's a wrap for season four, episode 11 of Burgundy Blogcast. Stay tuned to the blogcast for more action as training camp gets underway this week. And definitely follow me on Twitter at BurgundyBlog for more tips and nugs as I discover them.